Welcome to the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Podcast. My name is Natalie Nidham. I'm a nutritionist, a human potential, and epigenetic coach, and I created this podcast to bring you the latest ways to take control of your health and longevity. We cover it all, from new technology to ancestral health practices, personalized interventions, and a very special interest of mine, peptides. Enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. We go deep into cellular health today, but before we do that, a little bit of housekeeping. Number one, thank you so much for being here. Number two, if you're feeling inspired by this episode, you know what to do. Make sure that you follow or subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're lit, you happen to find it on. And if you would be so kind as to leave us a review, that would be hugely helpful, assuming that you're feeling, again, called to do so. And make sure that you share the episode out with your friends and your networks. Again, anybody who can get value from it. So everything else that I do, all the other stuff, check out natnidham.com, my website, sign up for the newsletter, and you get to stay up to date on all the amazing biohacks that I come across in my journey. All right, let's talk about the functional medicine space, the hot biohacking space. We often talk about cellular health. Now, what exactly does that mean? And have you ever wondered if you're truly taking care of your cells? I wanted to share a bit about a true cellular health game changer, supplements by bodybio.com. I've used their products for the last few months now, and I particularly love the phospholipid complex, or as we like to call it, PC oil. PC is a biological substrate, a phospholipid that contributes to cellular membrane structure and function. You can think of it as the building blocks that actually make up the cell membrane. Functionally, PC oil enhances the free passage of nutrients into the cell while helping the waste to get out, enhancing the process of metabolism. Better cell metabolism means better cellular health and ultimately a healthier you. So now with over 25 years as a family business, BodyBio consistently crafts its supplements in-house in the U.S. So they're never oxidized and we know that they're never heat treated. Visit bodybio.com today and get 15% off your first order when you use code Natalie. And that's Natalie with an H, N-A-T-H-A-L-I-E. Okay. Now in this episode of the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Podcast with guest Dr. Stephanie Estima, we discuss the importance of heading into menopause in the healthiest way possible. Now, if you're a man listening to this, don't run for the hills yet. You may want to stick around. You might learn a few things, or maybe you want to forward this to one of the women in your life. Now, we're talking about muscle. Muscle can often be thought of as a negative thing for women, as we often are taught early in life not to get too bulky. However, number one, it's a myth that needs to be left totally behind. Number two, we know that muscle is essential for hormonal balance, great body composition, looking amazing, and longevity. And most women really don't actually have to worry about bulking up too much. Trust me, I know. Now, we also dive into the science behind balanced hormones, what steps you can take to make sure you're heading into menopause as a powerful, confident woman, rather than taking it on as if it's some kind of disease. Menopause needs to be thought of as an evolution for your body and mind, not a nightmare situation. Bioidentical hormone replacement therapy can be essential for many women, and we guide you through how to talk to your doctor to get the best treatment possible for yourself. Now, overall, this episode offers guidance on navigating hormonal health, talking to your doctor about what you specifically need, and how to leverage menopause as a growth opportunity, not a season of anxiety and hardship. 
Now, Dr. Stephanie Estima, the muscle lady, is an expert in all facets of health, including nutrition, fitness, hormones, stress management, performance, recovery, longevity, health span, mental resilience, and energy production. She has a special interest in exercise physiology, biomechanics, neuroscience, and performance nutrition. She has spent 19 years in private practice and is a best-selling author, international speaker, and a mother. You can find information about her book and website on her Instagram at dr.stephanie.estima. All right, one more thing. Sensei, your ultimate solution for a calmer mind and improved well-being. Did you know that the vagus nerve is a direct connection to your primal brain. Research has shown that activating the vagus nerve can calm the brain medulla, reducing stress and anxiety. Sensate is the pioneer in non-invasive sound resonance technology, lots of big words, uniquely designed to gently soothe your nervous system by targeting your sternum. So what exactly does that mean in plain English? It means you have a device that's shaped like a beautiful, smooth black pebble. You place it on your chest. It works through an app on your phone and it delivers that infrasonic sound through very gentle, very targeted vibration. Sensate users have reported remarkable improvements, including enhanced sleep quality, increased heart rate variability, reduced anxiety of levels, improved focus, and an overall sense of well-being. By using Sensate, you can say goodbye to stress and hello to a more relaxed-centered you. You can take just a couple minutes out during the day. And I also love using my Sensate at night as I'm falling asleep. Now check it out and you can experience transformative stress reduction as well. Your journey to a calmer mind starts with Sensate. You can use code NAT at getsensate.com forward slash NAT to save on your purchase. And now let's jump into the episode. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that all of the information presented in this podcast is for information purposes only. No medical advice, no diagnosing, no treatments suggested here. Before you try anything that you hear about or learn about here, make sure that you check with your medical provider. Welcome to the show, Dr. Stephanie Estima. It is a pleasure to have you here. I've been watching from afar for a very long time. <laughs> oh, I'm thrilled to be here. We've been having a great chat and we just decided to hit record so everyone else could, could join in on the on the conversation. But yes, absolutely thrilled to be here. Yeah. And so just so the audience knows, we are actually recording remotely, even though we're in the same city, which we were laughing about the how our people in Toronto in this space, we don't do a very good job of connecting in person a lot of the time. We're so used to doing it virtually. Anyway, so here we are in the land of currently gray, but, uh, you know, we bring the sunshine in and and get the show on the road. So, Dr. Stephanie, let's, let's start with, you know, I, when I, it's funny, like the little bit that I've seen of you, and only because I've been running around myself so much, because you're really out there in a beautiful way. I love your social media and stuff. You talk about muscle a lot. So I think of you as the muscle lady, but at the same time, as I've been looking into more of your work, you're, you're doing a lot of work around this whole area of shifting hormones for women as they're moving through perimenopause and all the different effects. So maybe Let's. I'd love to talk about the space that you're in right now and why you're moving into, you know, you're evolving in, in many ways. I mean, it's a consistent message always, but you've kind of evolved. Yeah, well, the message sort of evolves in terms of my my life stage. I remember when I was in private practice, 
and I was pregnant, all I was doing was taking courses on pediatrics. <laughs> all I yeah. wanted to know was like posture and primitive reflexes and developmental milestones and all of that. And yeah, to your point, um, you know, my first book, and I'm sure we'll touch a little bit on it, was how to optimize for a woman's uh fertile cycle for her menstrual cycle. So in the book, it's called the Betty body just right behind. If you're watching on video, uh, my, the pink and purple book, (laughs) Yeah, Uh, you know, we talk all about how to eat, how to train, how to manage stress to optimize your fertility. And in my forties now, and I wrote that book partly for myself Mm -hmm. uh, because I had struggled with just an, an incredible amount of, you know, now looking back, you know, hindsight's almost 2020, it was like estrogen dominance, four years, terrible PMS, terrible breast tenderness, all the things. Uh, the week that my period, uh, or, you know, sort of the five days that I was on my bleed week, I was just completely incapacitated. So I wrote that for myself, part research, but also for the, my community. And now I'm in my mid forties. I just turned 46. So I'm on the other side of mid, sort of moving to mid to late forties. And I'm, you know, my attention has really directed to aging well and how I can preserve some of the foundational principles that have been with me my whole life. So lifting weights and eating well and managing stress for a woman in her perimenopausal and then menopausal years, because that's just the life stage that I'm in. And I'm very interested in in researching for myself. Unfortunately, as I'm sure we'll get into, there's just sparse, the sparseness of, uh, you know, solid clinical literature, uh, or I should say scientific literature uh, is, is, is hard. It's very few and far between. So Mm -hmm. a lot of the protocols that I have come up with are based on some of the literature, but also my clinical expertise, my time in private practice, uh, what my community is is telling me. And that's sort of the definition, if you will, of evidence-based medicine, right? We often hear about, you know, how do we, how do we make decisions based on the science? Well, the science is part what is in the literature, which is often behind by anywhere from 10 to 20 years. Mm-hmm. We take the clinician's sort of clinical expertise and his or her experience in practice. And then you also take the patient's dreams and goals. So all those three circles will overlap, you know, a Venn diagram, if you will. And that's evidence-based protocol. So that's what I'm, what I am very interested in now as a woman in her forties around some of the changing metabolic, uh, physiologic, hormonal changes, um, that happen for women as we approach menopause, some of the neurological changes as well, some of the brain changes and the neuromusculoskeletal system changes as we approach, uh, menopause and how we can, not look at it as a disease, but understand that there are going to be these changes and how we can prepare ourselves for them so that we don't misinterpret our experience once we get there. I think any clinician, any coach, I say this a lot, any coach worth their salt, any doctor worth their salt will be able to predict for their patients what is going to happen for them so that as the patient is moving through that experience, they're not feeling scared or they're not feeling like, gosh, this is new. Like no one told me about this, um, which I think so many women who are listening probably can relate to. Like, gosh, no one told me that my ears were going to itch. No one told me that I was going to have John flashes overnight, right? Like all these crazy symptoms that nobody has ever really talked about because menopause was kind of this dirty uh, sort of you know, disease, if you will. It was almost looked like, you know, women would suffer about this in silence. Yeah. Um, so I'm really hoping to change that narrative and to make it 
um, you know, a, a process that is beautiful, that's accepted, and that we put into place strategic tools and actions so that as we're moving through it, we can do it with, with, with as much love and grace for ourselves as we can. Yeah, no, I love that. I think that reframing this transition in life as a rebirth, reframing this transition in life as a just moving from one phase into the next, which we are definitely leaving things behind that we love, but we're moving into a new space that has, that offers new opportunities. And, and I, you know, I'm, I'm a few years ahead of you. And I have to say that when I was going through this, there were not the, the number of women, strong women voices advocating and educating and inspiring around this space. And so I just think it's beautiful to see. I think that, you know, the more as women, we can kind of come together, support each other, educate each other and say, hey, you know, it can suck a little bit, at least while you're going through it. But A, you're not alone. And B, there's so much we can do around it. And then another piece I think that's really, that I think is important is also communicating some of this information to younger women to help them to hopefully coming to this phase in a better state. Like if you have more muscle coming in, if you are metabolically balanced coming in, if your hormones are in reasonable shape and you've learned to manage your stress, you will have an easier time. So that doesn't mean that the woman in her 40s and 50s who's a bit of a, you know, who didn't have the time and the space to do the work beforehand, it's not that all hope is lost. She just might have to work a little harder. But if we can get to women in their 30s and they're even their 20s and 30s and help them to understand the value of investing in the, in these pieces of the puzzle now, that it'll just make things so much easier and more seamless moving forward. So- yeah. And what so, growth and you know what oppor- what opportunity do we have to go through something that's potentially difficult? So when we get to the other side, like any, if you reflect at any point in your life, any mm-hmm. difficult thing that you've done, maybe you've trained for uh, you know a marathon or the CrossFit Games, or you've gone through a divorce, or you've moved cities, or you've had to learn a new language. Like there's pain points. Yeah. While you're going through that that transition, but on the other side, how much growth, how much opportunity for reflection and growth as an individual is there? And I would I would love to look and reframe perimenopause and menopause to a larger extent as a growth opportunity. A hundred percent. I love it. So I and I I think that's that's definitely the way to go, right? Because all of a sudden it all becomes a positive. I mean, the hot flashes maybe less so, but they're manageable and they can be they can be mitigated with the right tools. So, I, you know, there's so many different ways, there's so many different directions I want to go in here. I mean, there's there's the nutrition, there's the hormone balancing, the BHRT, all the things. But maybe before we talk about those things, maybe let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, I think that it, lean muscle is this big flashpoint for women. And we were just talking about it beforehand. So many women worry about, oh, I don't want to get bulky. You know, I don't want to get big muscles. And the two of us started laughing and said, yeah, you just try. (laughs) Good luck to you. There are so few women that actually, that could actually potentially affect. And frankly, even the women with the big muscles that we see on social media, if you ran into them on the street, probably would just look amazing, right? Like they just, they wouldn't necessarily be so pumped, but maybe let's talk about, you know, women's view of muscle and, and how we maybe need to reframe that as well. Because I think of muscle as sexy personally. I think a, a woman who's carrying, who's well, who's, who's invested in that piece of her architecture, if you will, is always going to look amazing. Um, 
But maybe let's talk a little bit about women's attitudes around muscles and these preconceived notions that, oh, if I do too many bicep curls, I'm going to get a giant Popeye arms kind of thing. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's like if all, it, listen, if I could drink, if I could have the spinach and get those biceps, I would totally do it as well. So, I mean, the first thing, you know, to your point around bulking, I do want to frame this in, in such a way where we are taking into consideration you know, women of my age, right? So in our 40s, in our 50s, we grew up with, uh, I was saying to you in the, in the, in the show before the show, in the, in the podcast before we started recording, uh, that many of us grew up with the super, like the very, uh, over, like very thin, almost androgynous type um, supermodels. Uh, Kate Moss is someone who comes to mind. I remember that sort of waif, like, you know, that waif, <laughs> Uh, look when I was growing up. And I remember looking at myself in the mirror going like, my thighs are always going to touch. Like there's no way. It doesn't matter. That's not a bad thing. (laughs) Yeah. And that's not a bad thing. But, you know, growing up as a young girl, you know, I was 10, 11, 12, um, you know, kind of around that, you know, preteen, teen um, time where that was, that was the look, you know, and you would hear like ballerinas and models were eating Kleenex and all these like crazy things. Right. So, um, I do want to put this in perspective in terms of, you know, for everybody that's listening to understand how your cultural influence may be like the, the, the environment that you grew up in may be influencing that. Right. So if you grew up as I did with Kate Moss as like the supermodel, you know, kind of thing, you're going to be a little bit more resilient, uh, resistant to, yeah. you know, hitting the gym. Right. And even, you know, at, when I was, when I was younger, uh, it, my mom was doing like step aerobics and, you know, and high low. And, you know, and I, part of the way that I actually paid for my professional schooling was I became a step instructor. So I was doing the step aerobics. I was doing tie bow. I was doing the high low, all the things like those were like, I would pick up these classes before school, after school so that I could, you know, pay for my tuition. So, and all of that is like cardio, 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 like the way that you lose weight, the way that you become thin. And it was always like thin, 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 thin is through becoming this cardio bunny. And the weights were for the guys, right? The weights was for Schwarzenegger and all, you know, all of the, you know, all the bodybuilders. It was never really a place for women. Um, And I do remember that there was like, uh, in some of the gyms they had like, they still, there are some, still some gyms that have like ladies only training areas. Mm -hmm. Um, And they would have like five pound dumbbells, 10 pound dumbbells, right? Like they would have like weights and like some machines, like a few machines here and there. And then the dumbbells that they would have would like go up to maybe 20 pounds. Right. And they'd be pink. And they, yeah, it's like pink it and shrink it. Right. So it's like, let's give you everything in pink. So that's like branded as female and then we'll make it and we'll make it smaller. So, and we'll make it lighter in this case. So I also just want to shed some light on maybe where those belief systems come from. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of the, you know, sort of the the truth of the matter is that for 98%, and that's approximate, okay, there's always going to be outliers, but for the vast majority of women, um, it is going to be very difficult to become bulky. There are some women who can. There are some women who are more 
androgen dominant. They're always ripped. These are the women that we love to hate on because they can eat whatever they want and they always have muscle and they always are lean. Right. Um, But for the vast majority of women, that's certainly not the case. And I was just saying to you kind of in our little pre-chat, it's like, I've been lifting weights, trying to get bulky for, you know, two or three decades at this point and not, you know, still not there yet. So um, the bulky, Thing, the bulky myth, it just needs to go away and die because it is very, very um, inaccurate for the vast majority of women. Um, I think the other thing that pairs along with it, and I hear this a lot. I, mean, I was actually talking about my to my next door neighbor who I'm very good friends with. Um, and she was like, God, like your arms, like, how do you, you know, and we were, I was saying, well, I lift really heavy weights. Mm-hmm. And she's like, gosh, like, I don't, I just don't think like heavy weights, like, can't I, you know, I, like, can't I like do it with lighter weights? And I'll say that the end, the short answer is you can, if you maintain intensity and we'll, we'll come back to that. But I think that the lifting heavy piece is also very uh, difficult for women to wrap their head around because they've never been shown how to lift heavy. They've mm-hmm. never been invited to lift heavy. So they, you know, a lot of weight training programs that are directed towards women sort of have this like 12 to 15 rep range yeah. um, kind of structure to them. And they, yeah. <laughs> which is, which is fine. Like you will, you can build muscle there, but that's going to be like a moderate to even like a light in order for you to, you know, to rep out 15 reps that weight is not going to be heavy, right? So when we talk about heavy, and I talk about this in the book a little bit, heavy is like five to seven reps, right? Mm-hmm. Five reps, right? Um, so that's sort of what I want you to be thinking about when we when we think about he- like if there's a listener who's like, but what's heavy? It's like something that you can rep out five times, and six you're probably going to need a spot. Seven you're going to be worried if you can that your that your muscles are going to that you're going to fail. Yeah. So. That that's something that I don't think a lot of women they'll sort of and I see this all the time in the gym and I just like I've just learned to zip my lip and have compassion for people but they'll sort of go through the motions of like doing a bicep curl or doing an overhead press or doing squats or whatever but the weight is you know ten pounds fifteen pounds twenty pounds like that's not for your legs yeah you, know, you need a lot more than twenty pounds a hundred percent well and it's a, it's a mindset and a psychology right like I somehow found my way to CrossFit a number of years ago. Now I've left CrossFit because I got to the point where I felt like I was really just putting my chiropractor's kids through school. Like <laughs> just I will say as a, I will CrossFit. say in all honesty, I loved CrossFit. When I was in practice, I was like, where can I set up shop right next to a CrossFit? Because I know all those injuries are going to be coming right next to like they're going <laughs> to walk right into my door. I mean, I know that's a terrible thing to say, but you yeah. know, when you, that is absolutely true. I mean, CrossFit, a lot of injuries because it's all about the wad. It's all about more, 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 more. And there's no form. Like I'm sure that there are CrossFit gyms, hopefully that have abandoned that, um, the yeah, philosophy, it, but that's usually what we see. It's like, you got to do as many as you can and, you know, in, in a minute or whatever yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, it's, it's the concept of high load at high speed mm-hmm. to failure, which is a recipe for complete disaster. But anyway, yeah. that's, it's, but the, having said that it's, it is a different mindset. And, and I think what keeps people in CrossFit is the community that exists around CrossFit. Gosh, that, they, what they've done right 
is community because you feel like you, it's like going to church, you know, it's like, I'm going to go see my community. And that's what church actually used to be. It's like, I'm going to go see my community. We're going to socialize. We're going to, you know, sing songs together. And here it's like, we're going to get through this workout together. It's going to be really difficult, but we've all done it together. That's really bonding. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's where women get left out of the gym, right? They don't, and, and it's intimidating, but Okay, so so we're 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 moving into it's a great conversation, but let's let's go back to I want to because I want to lean into your genius a little bit, which is all of these things, but so much more. And maybe let's talk about how hormonal changes affect women's ability to build. And frankly, it even affects men's ability to build muscle after andropause. But let's not let's talk about the girls for today. Um, let's talk about how the hormones affect women's ability to build muscle and also what I call the forgotten tissues, which are the tendons and the ligaments that really get affected by the loss of these hormones, which is often what will, and in a world where a a woman gets convinced to go lift weights and maybe she doesn't get the right trainer or whatever, and then she gets injured because those, those, those supporting actors, if you will, which are the weaker links get damaged. And then we can move into the uber tissue, which is people don't think of it as a tissue, but bone. Okay. So I want to pre-frame this conversation by saying that you can build muscle at any age. So whether you are 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, uh, if you have never stepped into a gym, uh, if you are premenopausal, perimenopausal, postmenopausal, you can build muscle at any age. Um, and and that we actually used to think very differently around this. So yes. I remember even when I was in school, it's like once you get menopause and estrogen drops and testosterone drops, like forget about it. Like it's not happening, you know, like you cannot build muscle. Like you have to get all of your gains in prior to the cessation of, of your menstrual bleed. And that's simply not true. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, it's orders of magnitude easier to build muscle when you have sex hormones like estrogen and testosterone, these are anabolic, these are growth hormones when they are in a larger concentration. Okay. So prior to the onset of menopause, uh, we still have, and certainly women in perimenopause are going to say, oh my God, my cycle is all over the place. It is, but you still have cycling levels of these anabolic hormones, testosterone, estrogen. Um, It is much easier to build muscle prior to menopause. Um, Testosterone, I don't think everybody gets this, but I'll say, and I'll say this and I'll keep saying this. This is the most abundant sex hormone in the female body. Yeah. I know you know this. I know you're like, yes, fine. No, I, I love it. that you're saying this because it's, yeah. it, it needs to be said as many times as possible. So people get their yeah. heads. Yeah. So like we phenotypically ascribe estrogen as the female hormone, right? And we will ascribe testosterone as the male hormone. And certainly men have more testosterone than women. But when we look at the concentration within a woman, we have somewhere between 10 to 20 times more testosterone than we do estrogen. Okay. Now, of course, we have more estrogen um, than our male counterparts do, of of course. So testosterone, the most abundant sex hormone. So this is involved in you know, it's famous for libido, right? It's like, you know, this is why if you are someone who tracks her cycle, there's going to be certain times of the month when usually in the follicular phase, like kind of day, like from the cessation of bleed week to about day 10 or 12 of your cycle, your receptivity to, uh, and your interest in sex 
goes way up versus guys who are just kind of, and I say this a bit, it's like, they're always, we're all, they're always down for it. You know, like I always, I'm going to put my husband out here a little bit. He's going to kill me for saying this, but you know, he's always like, listen, honey, I just want you to know, like, I'm always ready for you. Like whenever you want, like we're always, I'm always ready to go. Right. (laughs) But that's, but that's because he's a guy, right? So he has higher levels of testosterone. So anyway, testosterone point I'm trying to say, Famous for libido, okay. Famous for sex drive, also very well known for its role in helping to maintain lean muscle, mm-hmm. uh, and it's also driven up after we mechanically stimulate the muscle. So once you go and you lift weights uh, close to failure, it doesn't have to be at failure, and this is where that intensity piece. Um, will come in. Um, as long as you're lifting close to failure, you are going to be driving up testosterone, you know, depending on your fitness level, somewhere between, you know, 10 hours post to like up to 48 hours post a workout. So um, as we approach menopause, uh, there is, there can be wildly oscillating levels of estrogen. Uh, so sometimes like for, for some women, there's no symptoms and God bless them. Uh, for many others, for, for the majority of us, uh, there can be points sort of earlier in peri- in that sort of perimenopausal phase where we run more estrogen dominant and that's estrogen dominant, again, relative to another hormone called progesterone. So mm-hmm. progesterone helps chill us out. It helps reduce uh, the recept- receptivity of estrogen receptors in the breast. It helps with, you know, we, you were talking about bone. When we talk about uh, bone health as we age, we want to be thinking about the turnover rate of bone, right? So you, you know, in the, in the show before the show, you were talking about osteoblastic activity, which is the bone. These are the cells that are involved in building new bone. Mm-hmm. We want to keep that high relative to osteoclastic activity activity, which are the bones that the, the, these resorb the bone, these break down the bone. So as we age, that, tr- that blast to clast ratio can change under the influence of estrogen. Estrogen promotes osteoblastic activity. So um, all that to say is over the course of perimenopause, and then certainly after uh, menopause, there is a, there is a uh, trend downward of our total estrogen and our total uh, testosterone. So these are some of the changes that we're up against. And certainly if you are not doing things like lifting weights, um, you are not going to be mechanically driving that post-exercise lift in actually both estrogen and testosterone. Both of those rise after uh, after a really good weight session. Um have I answered your question? Have I forgotten anything? What I think, were we? No, I, you know what? It was it was a multi piece question. So you're you've done a beautiful job on that first piece. The second piece was really the effect of estrogen and even testosterone of all of these different hormones on the integrity of the muscle, the tissue, the ligaments, yes. tendons, yes. right? Yeah. That, so these are these are uh, often forgotten. These are yeah. these are often forgotten, and because um, we just think of build, build, build. But what about yeah. The health of the tissues so that you can push yourself. So the good news is, is when we are stimulating the muscular system, so through something like resistance training, you're like you're lifting a weight and you're doing the bicep curl, let's say, um, through a variety of enzymatic uh, processes, we are also stimulating the bone fibroblastic growth factor. There's all of these, there's all of these different factors and enzymatic reactions that are also going to drive 
bone density. So this is something I always talk about, like muscles and bones are kind of like sisters, right? So when you have a lot of one, the likelihood of you having a lot of the other is also very high. It's very rare that you might see, you know, there may be some like certain genetic, there might be some genetic disease, but very, very rare that you would see someone who has a good amount of muscle mass with frail, weak right. bones, right? They're, they're, they sort of, as one goes up, the other goes up. There's sort of like a, there's a proportional or like a direct relationship between the two. In terms of tendons and ligaments, uh, these are, um, when we think about, you know, as a chiropractor, I can say when there were, when I was dealing with rehab and injuries, these are the ones that lag behind, right? So the muscle has a very good blood supply, the bone, uh, for the most part, very good blood supply, the bone marrow, the stem cells, all the things, but tendons and ligaments take for anyone who's had an injury, a shoulder injury, ACL injury, which actually women are much more uh, susceptible to having ACL injuries and knee injuries, let's say than our male counterparts are takes forever. Part of that is because of the poor vascularization that we see here. And then the other piece to it is the hormonal piece. So estrogen is again, anabolic hormone. It's involved in the integrity of our tendons and our ligaments. And I actually wrote about this in the Betty body as we see estrogen, you know, there's a certain point in the menstrual cycle, uh, probably about day 10, where we see this huge astronomical surge of estradiol. And that can make our ligaments too much estrogen. It's like estrogen, you just, it's like, it's Goldilocks. You want like, you don't want too little, you don't want too much. You just just want it just right. So too much estrogen actually makes the ligaments lax, meaning it makes them kind of loosey goosey, uh, which can actually put us at more susceptibility for injury. Sure. Um, as we see a decline in estrogen over the course of our perimenopausal and certainly our perimenopausal years, um, that is going to stiffen. We're going to see sort of a stiffening up like that looseness is going to go away. So now as the muscles, let's say are pulling on the bone, if you have an instability or you have a muscle, like a a mechanical problem or even a neuro uh, muscular problem, like your posture or your stability or your ability to sort of sense where your joint is in space is off, you are much more likely in perimenopause and menopause to injure your tendons and ligaments. And this is why we see things like frozen shoulder, very, mm-hmm. very common um, in, in, um, uh, in, in women in, in their perimenopausal and menopausal years. So, um, so, so estrogen here, as we are seeing this decline is making things just a little bit stiffer and yeah. it is putting us at an increased risk for injury. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, right? Like too lax and that laxity actually kicks in, in the final stages of pregnancy, right? It's what allows right. us to open right. up so that the baby can pass through. Like we want that at certain times of life, but definitely having the opposite, like we know that lack of flexibility is a massive issue as we age and compromises even your ability to build muscle, right? If if you're not flexible enough. And I would imagine, does the fascia get it get affected as well? Oh, 100%. That's, yeah. That's yeah. the yeah. real forgotten tissue, actually. The yeah. The fascia is sort of like the saran wrap around everything, right? So if you have longstanding, uh, poor mechanics, uh, poor posture, poor proprioception, the fascia is absolutely going to be affected there as well. So mobility work becomes more important. And I will say in the vein of sort of true, you know, transparency and honesty, like I used to 
even in practice, I was like, you know what you all need? You all need to do mobility work. You all need to do yoga. You all need to do your... Yeah. And I'm, and I am infallible. So I don't, I, my body doesn't, you know, abide by the same rules that yours. Are. So, but now as a woman in, you know, who's in her 40, you know, in her, in her, I'm 46, you know, it's really important for me to get in my mobs. Like I can't just jump into the gym and start working. I need to warm up the joints. I need to do my, I need to do yoga. I, this is something that I've actually recently, I used to do yoga a lot, um, more for like the mental benefits. Cause I literally feel high after I do yoga, but now it's for the flexibility. It's for the pliability. It's for the mobs, right? So very, very important for women to be thinking about mobility and flexibility as well as strength. Like if there's a couple of different levers, if you will, in being healthy in your forties and fifties, like cardiopulmonary fitness, right? Your cardiorespiratory fitness, your strength, right? So your, your explosive power and your strength, your endurance, your flexibility, and your mobility. A hundred percent. So what's your perspective on bioidentical hormone replacement therapy? Because that is kind of the obvious in addition to, like, sorry, I'm starting 20 sentences and not finishing any of them. But in addition to doing all the right things so that your hormones can balance as as well as possible as can be expected. So whether that's exercise or sauna, getting a proper sleep, managing stress, eating the, a good diet, all those things can help your body naturally to maintain reasonable hormone levels. But there's no doubt that as we're going through menopause, the hormone balance is going to change. You know, mother nature has a very specific um, blueprint, if you will, of how we're going to evolve past our reproductive years. And as a society, our expectations around this have changed. (laughs) We not only want, and I've heard you talk about this, not only do we want to be amazing moms, but then we want to be amazing grandmothers. And then if at all possible, we want to be the, the, you know, the great grandmother that might go out for a hike with her great grandkids, whatever the case may be. And that's even if the dream, that's the dream, baby. That's right. That's right. That's even if we didn't have our kids in our twenties. So which most of us at this stage of the game have not, or many of us have not. So, Mm -hmm. How, where's your, what's your stance on this whole issue? Because I know it's still, you know, paradoxically scares the bejesus out of so many women, which yeah. sadly based on a lot of flawed information that's been delivered over the last couple of decades, but this yeah. whole area around bioidentical hormone therapy, when do you think it's, is appropriate for women to start thinking about bringing in, let's say outside help for those, for those hormones? This is a great, I'm, I'm glad we're here. Okay. So, uh, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of hormone replacement therapy. Okay. So we're on I think that, yeah. Yay. So I think that the women's health initiative, which is, this was a study done. I think they published it in, in 2001, uh, really did a serve disservice, um, to females in terms of, I mean, I don't want to pick apart this. I've actually done a, a sort of a debunking, if you will, of the Women's Health Initiative on my podcast. So I'll send you the link of that right. if you want to put, in the, put show that in the show notes for people. But basically they chose uh, females for the study that were well past menopause. So they were in their six, like the average age, I think it was like 65 or 66, smokers, obese. Um, you know, so if you were looking for all of the risks for someone to have a cardiovascular event, uh, you would choose a smoker who was obese, uh, right? So, um, and put them on synthetic hormones and, and okay. And that's sorry. Yes. And that's the other thing. And then you put them on 
progestin, not progesterone. Uh, you know, it's like you can do, I, 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 one of my friends did a really funny reel today. So I'll just take, this is from Amy Killen. She was yes. like, tomato, tomato, potato, potato, progesterone, progestin. I love it. <laughs> not the same, not the same, yeah. not the same. They're not the same. So yeah. I'm a big, big, big fan of bioidenticals. Um, and honestly, if bioidenticals are not doing it, like, I would, I would, if for me, I would say personally, my choice would be if bioidenticals, if I'm taking, uh, you know, my estradiols and my, and it's not working for me, progesterone, I would be, I would be looking at Premarin. I'd be looking at some of the synthetic ones as well. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I think that when we look at the data, lifestyle interventions like nutrition, like fitness that we've been talking about, stress management are going to help the vast majority of women. So it looks like somewhere between 50 to 70% of women are going to show amelioration of some of these common you know, signs and symptoms, clinical signs and symptoms that we, that we see in perimenopause. So the hot flashes, the aberrant mood changes, sleep disturbances, et cetera. However, that still leaves... 30 to 50% of the population that is not, even though they are implementing some of these things, not finding benefit. So, um, or still not seeing benefit enough to sort of improve their quality of life. Mm -hmm. So I am, I'm a fan of hormones. I think that that should be absolutely integrated and there should be a conversation uh, with your primary healthcare provider. That might be your medical doctor. That might be your naturopath. That might be anybody who is licensed, nurse practitioner, anyone who is sort of licensed to be talking to you um, about hormones and prescribing them for you. And I would say that if in an ideal world, so like unicorn sparkles and rainbows, you would actually be doing blood work twice a year. So yeah. that means that from about age 35, it, it, uh, even earlier, honestly, but like most women are like busy having babies and building out the career and all that stuff. But if you can around the time 35, somewhere between 35 and 40, get some kind of baseline for you, yeah. some kind of baseline of progesterone, some kind of baseline of estradiol, some kind of baseline of, t- of testosterone, then you can monitor that over time. Because mm-hmm. my levels of testosterone are going to be different from your levels of testosterone, which is why some of these sort of normal ri- like ranges become um, insignificant at best and not useful at worst, because they're not actually taking into account the bioindividuality of, of, of the, of the patient in front of them. So tracking your own levels at the very minimum once a year, but twice a year is better. Um, so that over time, if you are tracking your cycle and you're getting regular blood work, you can communicate that data to your doctor. Remember your doctor has probably 500 other patients that they're taking care of. Um, often they don't have 45 minutes or an hour to, 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 to chat with you. So you have to be able to come in. And I know that that's unfortunate and we can untangle the problems in our healthcare, you know, maybe another podcast, but the okay. reality is your, your doctor has about 10 minutes with you. You need to be able to come prepared right? Mm-hmm. So you need to be able to come and say, this is my cycle. My cycle has been like this for three years, every day on the, you know, on the, it's like 20, I'm a 28 and 0.5 day girl. And it's been like that. And then the last six months, it has been like, it's dropped from 28 to 25. And I'm also having sleep disturbances at this and such and such. And such. You need to be able to come to your doctor with that information so that she or he can have a, a data-based evidence-based conversation with you. Um, and that that conversation should include hormones. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. I mean, it's simple, it's as simple as that. And a lot, and unfortunately you'll still find like a lot of women listening to this are going to be like, yeah, but my doctor is going to tell me, you know, it's going to increase my you know, risk for heart attack, or I'm a breast cancer survivor. Or there's all of these different permutations. And certainly you have to take into account your personal history um, with your, with your primary, but that's not, you still should be having the conversation. And if you are if your libido has tanked, if you have hot flashes, if your quality of life has reduced and you're doing all the right things, you're eating clean, you're lifting, you're managing your stress and your doctor is refusing to talk to you about hormones, with respect, find another doctor. Hey folks, guess what? They're back. What are they? They are oral bioregulator peptides, nutritional supplements that deliver these magical little protein chains to your cells, they get into the nucleus of your cell, bind to the DNA in your cell and upregulate the production of proteins that help your body to rejuvenate at a cellular level. And where can you get them? Profound-health.com. And you get to use discount code longevity15 on your first order and save 15% off. And when you, while you're in that store, check out the other amazing products that they have. These guys are pros when it comes to slowing aging and making sure that we stay healthy with the most innovative products. So we've got the bioregulator peptides, those oral capsules that are so easy to take. We've got synthetics as sublingual drops that you can just drop into your mouth and so many other amazing products. So check it out, profound-health.com and discount code longevity15 to save 15% off your first order. Now let's get back to the episode. I mean, I remember having a conversation with a doctor who we mutually fired each other because I was using bioidentical compound hormones and she basically, you know, was very upset and said, I will not take medical responsibility for this. And I said, okay, that's not a problem. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You don't need to. I mean, so many, I mean, this is maybe another conversation, but I can't tell you in our help desk that we have women that are like, my doctor's refusing to do a full thyroid panel on me. Yeah. You know, so it's like, how are you going to talk to them about hormones when they won't even look for anti, you know, someone's like my, I don't like a third of my eyebrow isn't there. And like, I'm gaining weight for no reason. And I'm freezing all the time. And all they're doing is taking a TSH. You know, maybe yeah. like a free T3 and a free T4. It's maybe. like, you actually need to be looking for the antibodies there. Yeah, or reverse you know? T3. I mean, you need to be... So right. um, you brought up such a great point. And un I mean, unfortunately or fortunately, and I don't know that the US is that different than Canada unless you're in a concierge medicine practice where you're paying a lot of money and, and the provider takes an hour to sit with you. Mm. Um, but we are in a position now with the medical system that most of us are dealing with is you do have to become educated enough that you can walk in the door with exactly what you talked about. Like you, we need, and it's part of the reason why these podcasts and, and so many great programs out there help women and even men to become so much more educated about what they should be looking for so that they can assist and become a partner with their doctor in managing their their optimal healthcare. And, and yeah, I, it's not a luxury. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's now, yeah. it's, it's a necessity. And I think if anybody, and even in, in disease, like if you know anybody who's landed in a hospital in the last, I don't know, I don't know how long, but certainly in the last 15 to 20 years, you better have somebody on board with you. Who's going to advocate for you and keep an eye on things and monitor what's going on because everybody, all the systems are under stress in the, in the system. And so we now need to step up for ourselves and for our loved ones to be 
much more vocal and active participants in managing this health journey and longevity journey that we're all on. And so the idea of walking into the doctor's office with data points and kind of letting go of the idea that your doctor has to be an all-knowing, all-seeing entity that's instant, just going to know what you need. Yeah, they're, they're a human with kids at home and deadlines and bills to pay, and they're distracted potentially just as much as you are. Yeah. So you, you need to be able to dial in their focus to exactly what you want. Yeah, a hundred percent. So great. So, so hormone therapy and, you know, the one thing we didn't talk about, and maybe we want to talk about it a little bit is the other piece of the puzzle that kind of slides during these, this trend hormonal kind of transition through perimenopause and menopause is cognitive health. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is our ability to think clearly and to remember things and to, and part of that is sleep. You know, if your sleep goes south, your brain's not going to function. I'm tripping over my words today because I got home from a trip at 4.30 in the morning this morning. <laughs> and so I'm, you know, I've, I've done all the things that I can do to, to sharpen my brain, but there's a point where lack of sleep, even one night is enough to send your brain sideways a little bit. But certainly losing the progesterone, which negatively impacts your sleep, but estrogen. And I don't know to what degree even testosterone affects brain cognitive, brain function. I know estrogen gets a lot of talk in this area. Yeah, I would say, so there's a lot of women that I've either uh, worked with, consulted with, um, or have just sort of in passing um, mm-hmm. as, they're, as they're moving. It usually happens sort of later in their 40s. So like late, you know, late, mid to late 40s, where they'll say things like, I have way more anxiety than I, like things bother me a lot. Um, or I used to be so confident, you know, about myself or about making decisions. And I'm, I'm not that way anymore. I feel like I, you know, I used to like own the boardroom or whatever. Is it called my, I call them like my boardroom Bettys, right? It's like you walk in and you just like own it. Right. Yeah. So in their, in their, you know, late forties or fifties, they, be, they feel like they're becoming more of these little meek little mice um, mm. versus the sort of powerful woman that they were. And that is directly, you can directly trace that back to testosterone. So testosterone is what helps us. It gives us um, confidence. It helps us, um, pardon me, <laughs> excuse me, it helps us uh, make uh, decisions to evaluate risk. Um, And so declining levels of testosterone can absolutely impact our our, many aspects of our personality, right? Uh, Even our, you know, when we talk about declining estrogen, as as you mentioned, you know, our vernacular, our ability to communicate part of that. I mean, there's estrogen and testosterone receptors like everywhere in the body, but in the brain, you know, our communication skills, our ability to read faces, our ability to sort of read the room, if you will. That's a lot of that. There's other factors, but a lot of that is estrogen. So some of these things become um, more difficult as we, you know, reading the room, making, analyzing risk and making a decision these things become more difficult for women. A lot of women will also talk about brain fog and forgetting yeah. things. Yeah. I'm walking into a room and I have no idea why I'm there. There is um, there is some research, uh, Dr. Lisa Mosconi and her, um, um, and her body of work talks about this neurological pruning that happens 
as we're in those perimenopausal years and as we're moving through menopause in the same way during other pertinent times of our lives, you know, when you mentioned pregnancy, you know, Mm -hmm. we all know about like the baby brain, right? Where like the mom, all she can focus on is her baby or her pregnancy. Like after she's given birth, that's part of that is a, you know, it's part of that is hormonally driven, but a lot of that is neurologically driven because you're trying to ensure the success of the offspring. So you can't focus on career. You can't focus on the, the, the messy house or whatever. You're just focused on the baby. Mm -hmm. So the same thing happens for us as we are moving through perimenopause and menopause, you no longer need those neurons that are involved in the survival of your offspring. When you're 50, your children, you know, depending on the age you've had them, somewhere in their teens and their twenties, you know, maybe just got accepted to law school as you were, <laughs> as you were mentioning, right. You like they're adults. So yeah. we don't need to be focusing. We don't need that brain power, that neural power anymore to be focused there. So what does your body do? Use it or lose it. You prune. The brain is becoming more efficient because now we have neurons and, and sort of uh, feedback loops and energy and resources diverted to these pathways that no longer are required. Mm-hmm. So rather than, so, so a lot of women, it can be very painful for some women, right? It's the brain fog, it's the confusion, it's the anxiety. It's like, I don't feel like myself anymore. And then you layer on top of that, the sort of cultural, the generalized cultural view that once you're fer- no longer fertile, you're useless, right? Yeah. It's like never age. It's like the America Ferreira soliloquy from Barbie. It's like never age and always be thin and always be nice and always do this and that. So you layer on all of those things and a woman is going to feel like she's beside herself. And then for many women, they suffer for for many, many years. So this is, you know, just kind of piggybacking on what we were just talking about. This is where hormone therapy can be very, very important. Stress management also becomes incredibly important during this time because your ovaries are essentially retiring. Your ovaries are essentially saying, listen, I've been working for you for 40 years I'm retiring, I'm getting my Rolex and I'm going to the Bahamas. I'm not doing anything else, right? So it's the adrenals who have to take over the job now of what the ovaries once did and also take care of their regular functions as well. So the adrenals always are, they will always be producing some of our sex hormones, but they, after menopause, do all of it, right? So you really do have to have your stress management in place. A lot of women that I speak to, and maybe it's just, I attract the same type of woman that I am, have a really hard time with things like meditation, have a really hard time. Like that's the one lever. It's like the stress management piece. It's like, I can get to the gym and I can do the cardio and I can do the nutrition, but the stress piece is really difficult for me. Um, and this is part of the reason why I've taken up yoga because I can, I just, I try so hard to meditate and it's so hard for me. It's like, I don't know if Nat, if you're the same, but it's so hard for me to do that. It's, you know, I think part of the challenge with meditation is it involves stopping. It's, it's t- yes. Yeah. You know what it is? And so we're so programmed to go, 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 go. Yeah. This idea of stopping and not doing whether even 10 minutes or 20 minutes is a real yeah. It's a real challenge, right? But, yeah. you know, going back to the cognitive changes, I think that, and not to add more to people's plate, to, to anybody's plate, but what I found was helpful for me moving through that stage was, first of all, I had the blessing of getting into this industry in my early 40s as I was mm-hmm. kind of transitioning myself yeah. and leaning into learning about neuroplasticity, learning about things like lion's mane mushroom, like, like nu- nutrition that was going to feed my brain 
Not to mention this idea of neuroplasticity, which is what you just said a minute ago, use it or lose it. Now let's let's learn a skill. Let's lean into something that interests us. Let's use the brain because the body the body is is really clear about this. And this goes for muscle, it goes for bone, it goes for brain. If you don't use it, if you don't show your body that you need it, it's yeah. going to be like, look, we're about efficiency here. We're about keeping you alive. We don't care what you look like. We don't really care if you're thinking clear. Well, we care if you're thinking clearly because it'll be hard for you to stay alive if you're not thinking clearly. But if you're not going to use it, especially if it's a metabolically expensive tissue, yeah. which is muscle and brain, we're going to we're going to pair back. Right. So that we can put our resources where we think that we need it. Yeah. And, and so this idea of you know, like, and, and as I'm saying it, I'm like, I'm not telling you to go out and learn new language at a time when you're in the sandwich generation and you're going through all these hormonal changes and stuff, but definitely reframing this time as an opportunity to lean into using your brain differently, learning something different. And it could be exercise. Frankly, it could be salsa dancing, but it could be. Yeah. I love that. I, so I was going to, I was going to make a joke about let's be friends on Duolingo because that's like my big, <laughs> you know, I was talking to a neuroscientist and he was like, yeah, one of the best ways to sort of keep your brain alive is to, is to struggle. Right. So is to like the, in the struggle is actually where we create new neurons, right? When you're learning a new language, we, we remember if you've had children, you know, they started off with like mama, papa, you know, baba, whatever, uh, you know, whatever language you're, you're, they're growing up in. And then it's like, two sentence, it's two word sentences, then the three word sentences. So in something like Duolingo or in learning a language or learning a new skill, any type, it could be a motor skill. You could learn how to bake. You could be learning how to paint. You could be learning, you know, pottery class. There's going to be frustration because you don't, you haven't acquired the automaticity to it yet. But yeah. in that frustration is actually where we birth new neurons, right? So when you're getting frustrated with the French language, because I always do, I'm like, how is this little word? How are there so many little words that don't actually mean anything? And this, I can help you with and that. I'm a, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a Frank, I'm a Francophile, so I love everything French. Uh, yeah. But there's times in Duolingo, I'm like, ha, why? Where is this word coming from? Doesn't make any sense, even on the, even in the syntax, whatever. So yeah. we'll have an offline conversation about all. It's like, it's like French people trying to learn how to spell in English. Yes. I mean, really. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> uh, so any, anything that causes frustration, it could be going to the gym for the first time, like feeling totally overwhelmed by all the machines and all the noises and all the people, all of that is going to birth new brain growth. You are going to have neuro, like the, the neuroplasticity, right? That, that, that neuronal, uh, uh, like you're going to be just making new neurons. Yeah. So finding something because now your children don't need 100% of your attention anymore. You are, you know, this is why menopause often is referred to as the second spring, because mm -hmm. now you have this opportunity to actually say, okay, I'm going to be here. There's, I got at least 40 to 50% of my life left. So what is it that I actually want to be doing? I've spent the last several decades serving other people, serving little people who I love, maybe mm -hmm. serving, you know, a career or a husband or, you know, whatever your community what is it that I actually really love? Is it travel? Is it languages? Is it, a, you know, a new motor skill set? Like you said, salsa dancing, Zumba class, you know, whatever it is, how can you actually get closer to who you already are, but you've maybe been ignoring because you've been in service to other people? Yeah, no, I, I, I really love that. And so it's all these little pieces of the puzzle that, that come together that help us through the transition and to see it as a, as an evolution instead of, a nightmare, 
right? And it's like it so often it gets framed as, you know, this kind of nightmare stage of life. Yeah. And I think that as women and as a community of women, and we have so many beautiful voices in this space. I mean, there's yours, there's you mentioned Dr. Amy Killen, who's amazing. There's Dr. Carrie Jones. And not only are they bringing their big brains and huge knowledge to the space, but they bring it with humor and compassion and empathy. And I do think that we're in a time right now where it's never been a better time to go through these transitions because there's so many women who've now, they've kind of picked up the challenge and they've stopped, you know, we've kind of stopped lamenting a little bit the lack of scientific research and clinical data, as we were talking about earlier, and double blind studies. And you know what, maybe, I mean, yeah, those are great for some stuff, but I actually think in many ways we're going to be better served by the direction we're going in right now, which is in the moment, in practice, clinical, like what's happening, what is serving women, what is working for them. I couldn't agree more. And I, I think that for some people, it is a choke point when they are saying, I just want evidence. I just want the literature to be able to inform my yeah. decisions. Or, you know, if you're a coach or a doctor, like I want to have this information to in, in, to sort of inform my care plans for my for my patients or my programs for my clients. And we're, we're women are not, we're not algorithms, you know, like there's, there's so much, you can't, in, in some ways I, I'm a, obviously I'm a big fan of science, you know, I hang my hat up on, um, on, on scientific inquiry, but at the end of the day, science is never settled. It continues to evolve. And I know that there are, you know, hundreds, if not millions of women who have been, you know, I'm, I'm thinking specifically about, uh, there's a lot of people who um, will say, oh, there's nothing, the menstrual cycle doesn't do anything in terms of your performance or your training. And it's like, it's usually men who say that, right? So it's the first thing is like, you know what women love the most in life is when men explain to them about their periods. So yeah. that's, that's, and we just, we so. just love that, right? But the, but the other thing, the other thing is that lack of evidence is not evidence of lack, right? It's just that the scientific literature is just not there. It's usually anyway, anywhere from 10 to 20 years behind anyway. Um, so I would say that, um, yes, scientific inquiry is important, but to your point, clinical practice, the clinical experience of, of the clinician, let's say, and then just even when there isn't, you know, I'm writing an article right now about cold plunging and females. Do you know how much literature there is in PubMed? Like, and I've done like almost, I think there's one. Yeah. It's ridiculous. But you know, everything, everything yeah, is yeah, so yeah. cold plunge, cold plunge, cold plunge, cold plunge. Nothing specifically about women. What's the protocol for women? No one's looked at it. And well, uh, I think I'm I'm what? curious because I personally hate cold plunge. I think it's a I think it's my ethnic background. My people never had to deal with this cold plunge. What's your what's your ethnic background? I'm Moroccan. I'm You're Moroccan. Africa. Okay. Okay. So okay. I'm, I'm like, I'm like, so you're like, I my people that, don't know this. No, we don't. Like, I mean, we, put me in a sauna. I'm all in. I'll do the heat shock protein till the cows come home. Same, but yes, don't put me in. And I've done cold plunging when I've had to, but it's just. Okay. So I'll tell you what I've come up with. So I, uh, so I too, my people too, <laughs> my people also dislike the cold. <laughs> so I, my background, my father's from uh, Portugal and then my mother's family is from Lebanon. So you're also like warm, warm blooded, very passionate people. So I, I'm like you, I'm like, I can stay in the hut. I can do, you know, so you take that, you know, you take that genetics, you plop it in Toronto when there's, you know, winter for six months of the year and yeah. here you go. But I actually am a big fan of, fan of cold plunging 
insofar as the mental resilience and the grit uh, that it gives you. There is a slight metabolic benefit. I wouldn't hang my hat on it, but we do, you know, in in keeping you warm while you're in the plunge and then the warming up afterwards. Uh, and there is a beijing effect to the white fat. So we do see white fat tends to turn more brown, like it tends to have more density of mitochondria, making it more metabolically active. Okay. But for women, it's a little different. So for women, we tend to be more sensitive to the cold. So we get colder faster. So when you see, um, I don't want to say bros, but I'm just going to say it. Like, you know, when we see these bros that are like cold plunging and they're like, it's zero degrees Celsius or it's, you know, 12 degrees or, you know, it's like two degrees Celsius outside. Like that's very, very cold for a woman. Mm-hmm. So uh, I have a cold plunge at home and I usually keep it. So I'm, I'm thinking in, in Celsius, but I'll do my best to convert this to, to Fahrenheit as well. So I keep it at 13 degrees centigrade, which is okay. about 55 Fahrenheit. Yeah. So that's that sweet spot, right? It's 55 and below is where you're going to get the benefits. Yeah. But for women, you don't need, it doesn't need to be much colder than that. I don't need to go in a 37 degree Fahrenheit tub to get the benefits. I'm going to start shivering earlier than my, you know, and my husband does it with me. So we will set the cold plunge at the same. I'll go in first. Then he goes in, uh, like we wait for it to cool down a little bit and then he'll go back in. And he doesn't get as cold as I do, but I shiver. So at 13 Celsius or 55 Fahrenheit, I'm shivering. I stay in there for about eight to 12 minutes, depending on where I am in my cycle. Yeah, my, yeah. Lute- my luteal phase, I'm warmer. So it's a, it's a welcome relief during that time. But there's no, there's no, no one has looked at where a woman is in her menstrual cycle versus a cold plunge. So I'd say about 55 degrees um, Fahrenheit would be like a great time for women. And you don't need to stay in there as long. The other, the other thing that has come up in the literature, I will say, is that the immune benefits mm. um, that we see from cold plunging seem to be lower in women than they do than they are with men. So men seem to derive a greater benefit from cold plunging, uh, both the neurological, like the release of dopamine and all the sort of bliss chemicals, um, and the immune function uh, afterwards. So women, the the response is a bit attenuated. That doesn't mean that it doesn't happen and there's no benefit. It just means it's a smaller. And it's not the same is the point. It's not the same. It's not the same. Uh, Is there benefit? Yes, but we have to do it differently, right? Mm -hmm. We have to do it differently. So that's, um, so that's an example of very, very slim pickings in the research. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the actually, the other thing I'll actually add to that is um, often it's said like never cold plunge after exercise, never cold plunge after exercise because you're getting rid of some of the you know, the, the adaptive, um, uh, you know, properties that, that, you know, exercise is actually pro-inflammatory acutely. Right. And then the adaptations. So that's fine. Uh, I I agree with that and little asterisks and little asterisks, right? Women post-exercise, we tend to vasodilate. So whenever you, would you ever get like tomato face? Like when you're working out, like your face is like super, super red. Yeah. Men, men don't actually have that. Like they tend to actually um, vasoconstrict really well post-exercise. So they don't get the tomato face. They don't get super red everywhere. Women tend to vasodilate such that our blood tends to pool in the periphery for longer. Mm. So in the skin, away from the muscles, the tendons, the ligaments, the joints, the discs that need them for repair. Yeah. So actually a coolish- A cold plunge. Yeah. yeah, A coolish, yeah. A coolish cold plunge, you know, maybe an hour or, you know, you get your heart rate settled and all that after your workout for women seems to be 
promising as a way to, as, as a recovery tool to help direct the blood away from the skin, like away from the surface and into the, into the areas that we need it. Interesting. Right. But no one's, no one's really. But you're saying coolish. So when you say coolish, coolish. Do you 55 degrees coolish, or yeah. do you think like a cool shower, like 65 degrees? I mean, it's, it depends on the individual, right? Yeah. I, for me, a cool, coolish is 55 degrees. So I'm going to, I'm going to get into a 55 degree, you know, 13 degrees Celsius bath, you know, an hour or two of my cold plunge tub, like an hour or two after I exercise. And I don't think that that is going to affect my adaptations to the exercise in any way. Well, and your case in point, you're doing great. I've seen videos of you in the gym. You're doing all right. <laughs> yeah. I work my butt off. I work my butt off. Like I'm not going to get in as soon as I get home. I'm going to, oh. I'm going to cool down, you know, red faces, you know, my red face is going to be kind of, but I'm going to help as a recovery tool. I'm going to help direct some of that muscle, uh, some of that blood, let's say into the muscle. Yeah. Back to where you needed to do the work. Yeah. Okay. Well that I, that was an, that was a welcome little tidbit that I didn't think we were going to go to cold plunge. What about mm-hmm. sauna? Seeing as thing is we're in the world of of uh, extreme temperature adaptations, so mm-hmm. we get we get benefits at both sides. And actually, yeah. the, before we move on to sauna with the cold plunge for women who are still cycling, you mentioned this a little bit in the luteal phase. It might be more welcome. Is there a time in a woman's cycle when she should kind of maybe not cold plunge as much? Um. So I'll say I'll preframe this by saying that I am right now, I don't think that I have a lot of strong literature to stand on. Yeah. Uh, I will say that the first thing that you, the first thing that you want to do is you want to check in with yourself and see, you want to auto-regulate. And that's actually true for exercise. It's true for cold plunging. It's true for sauna, any type of stressor. Okay. We always want to say, how am I feeling today? So in my book, for example, I talk about really pushing it, like doing those heavy, heavy weights in the follicular phase, like after bleed week, you know, when your testosterone is rising, I today at the time of this recording, I'm exactly at day 10 in my cycle. So really when I should push it. And I got to the gym this morning and I was like, I don't have it. Didn't sleep well last night, you know, for whatever, you know, so I'm, so that is an example of me saying, here's the, here's the ideal scenario. And then here's the application in life, right? Didn't sleep really well last night. I don't really have it in me to lift heavy weights. If I do, I feel like I might, you know, I feel like I might tweak something or I might try to push it when I shouldn't. So I, I went, I did moderate, I did moderate weights today. Um, so that's, I'll say auto-regulation is the sort of the number one priority that we want to be thinking about. So with sauna, I would say the same is true. Like in, in all the extremes, I think it's the same for women here as well. We don't need the high, 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 like the, you know, the, 180, 200 degrees Fahrenheit sauna in order to reap the benefits. I think that the temperatures can be lower for us. And I think that we actually reap, you know, most of the benefits in a shorter amount of time. So we don't need to be in the sauna for an hour. You can be in there for 20 minutes, 40 minutes, and you're going to get great benefits from it at a shorter amount of time as well. Great. Love it. That's, um, I mean, I can be in the sauna longer, but at the same time, understanding and also understanding for people who are time pressed, which is almost everybody these days, what's yeah. the minimal effective dose, right? So maybe as yeah. we as we kind of wind down on the episode, let's maybe talk a little bit about minimum effective dose for weights, for um, you know, exercise in general. And <laughs> and sorry, my dog just came back from her walk. She's 
she's dissing the dog bed and just lay down on my treadmill. Oh, uh, nice. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I would say for exercise, minimum effective dose, uh, I would say if you are someone who's not regularly weight training right now, just start, do one day, right? like one or two days a week, minimum effective dose. I think that you'll probably start to see some really good results at three days a week, probably full body at that at that point. Um, I would argue that as you adapt to three days a week, I would probably want to see that number jump to four. So like three is good, four is much better than three. Um, in terms of cardiorespiratory fitness, mm-hmm. um, as someone who sort of grew up in the cardio bunny uh, era, I would say that don't use cardio for fat loss. That's not, that's not why you want to use, that's not why you want to be doing it. Uh, You want to be doing it for your cardiopulmonary system. You want to be doing it for your heart health. The number one killer for women is not breast cancer. It's heart attacks. It's heart disease. Um, And for women, we won't get into this now, but often, uh, again, the symptoms for a heart attack for a woman can be distinct from that. It's not the shooting pain in the left arm that we're all sort of taught in school. Uh, For women, it can be really bad indigestion, a really bad headache. Oftentimes women are turned away from, they're like, this is the worst headache of my life. And they'll go to the emergency and they're, they're often turned away. So cardiovascular disease is the reason why you, you want to be thinking about your heart health all through your life, but particularly um, as we are in menopause. So we want to be doing somewhere, uh, you know, the recommended um, number is somewhere between 120 to 150 minutes of like zone, a combination of zone one and two training. Um, I personally think, uh, and I'm doing some research on this now, I haven't even spoken publicly about this yet, um, but I will be. I don't actually think that we need to be doing as much zone two Mm-hmm. We already have more type one fibers than our male counterparts do. So not to, okay. So get a little bit nerdy just for a sec. Type yep. one fibers, very oxidative. It's like, if you and I are going for a walk, if I actually went to your place in Toronto and we went for a walk together, um, <laughs> we could walk. Yeah. We, what a concept. We could walk for several hours. Mm-hmm. Right. And that is using a slow, that's our slow twitch muscle fibers. Okay. So those are highly oxidative. Those are fat burning women have more type one fibers than they do type two. Type two fibers are the fast twitch. These are the speed burst, uh, explosive fibers, if you will. Uh, They are uh, utilized in weight training. Uh, They're also utilized in things like sprints and burpees and any type of explosive movement. So um, I know that there's lots of people online that talk about this 120 to 150 minutes per week. And I don't think that women need as much uh, of that zone two training because we are already well adapted to what, you know, if you think about it from an evolutionary perspective, we were carrying, we were the original ruckers. Like I know Michael yeah. Easter talks about rucking and it's this big thing. It's like, you know what we've been doing forever? Carrying babies on our backs. You know how mm-hmm. much babies weigh? 10 to 15 pounds. It's usually the size of a rucksack. So we are like the original ruckers. Um, we are very well adapted for type, for that zone two oxidative phosphorylation where we're burning fat. Where I think that we need to put more of our focus on is the explosive, the type two muscle fibers, because we lose starting, uh, it's like 35 to 40. uh, We start losing speed, Mm -hmm. like that burst much quicker. Like you always hear the stats, like you lose 1% of lean muscle mass per year. And, you know, by, you know, that's a 10% in a decade. Yes. And you can lose up to 8% of your type two muscle fibers 
per annum per year if you are not training them. So you can see how you can get very slow, very quickly. Yeah. Um, So I think it's more important for women to be thinking about burst training, Mm -hmm. um, explosive training. Uh, The other thing to, the other thing I'll say about burst and explosive training is that it's anabolic. Uh, it's the only cardio that is anabolic. The, uh, you know, all other like the zone two low intensity is catabolic. It breaks mm-hmm. things down, right? Uh, when you are sprinting on a treadmill, doing rupees, you know, whatever, uh, the, this is all building, it's building muscle, it's building this type and specifically the type two muscle fibers. So I don't know exactly what my recommendation is at this point. I'm still very heavy in the research. I didn't actually think we were going to go here, but I'm writing quite a bit on it right now. Um, but I don't think that women need as much zone two training as we often see. Again, like the Hubermans and the, you know, and God love Andrew, like love what he's doing for science and awareness. But um, he's basing a lot of the data that he talks about and as not just him, many others um, on male dominated research. I don't think women need as much t- zone two training. Well, and I think to your point, like the the hit training, that's part of the hit training, like the high intensity interval training, which allows you and and I think that it you know interestingly enough, I spent a lot of time training women in gyms too, and women are also very intimidated by high anything that when you say high intensity because maybe they haven't been exercising for as long. But one of the things yeah. I spent a lot of time explaining to my clients is high intensity is relative to where you are. Absolutely. Just like a heavy weight. What is heavy weight? You know, it means something to you different to me. Yes, please. Sorry to interrupt. No, that's okay. I mean, it's, it's, what is it going to make you red in the face? Sweat, lose your breath. What does it for you may not do it for me, but what does Mm. it for me may probably won't do it for you. And so understanding that, you know, helping people to get started in these places without being completely overwhelmed by the prospect of it is understanding that wherever you start, is where you need to be. The point is Absolutely. to continue yeah. to progress through it. And my, I haven't read your book yet, but I'll get my hands on it at some point. But I'm pretty sure the Betty Body makes that point. That is that wherever you are beginning is going to be the place that's going to get you to where you need to be. Because the body doesn't, I don't think that there, it's not like you need to put 200 pounds on your back to build bone. You need to challenge your bone to build bone. Absolutely. More so than what it's used to now. Exactly. So it's, and I think for many women, it's it's so intimidating to be a beginner. It's yeah. so intimidating. Um, you know, I when I was when I was coaching my healthcare practitioners, I'm like, you got to be okay with sucking for a bit. Like it's okay to suck. It's okay to be a beginner uh, because you're just learning all of this stuff, right? And the same is true for patients. It's okay to not know exactly what the right glute exercise is, or maybe your squat technique isn't hundred percent on form, but you're doing something. And that is going to provide you with the, with the form and the platform to improve if you are, you know, so inclined to do, you know, so inclined to, to want to improve. So I, I think that, um, yeah, your point is well taken and it's, it's okay to be a beginner. It's okay to, you know, to, to not know exactly what's in front of you and not to have it all planned out and not have the whole, the whole, you know, charts and all the Excel spreadsheets. It's okay to just start and do like take perfectly imperfect action. Love it. Beautiful. Well, I think that's actually a really great place to kind of close this first conversation. I'm hopeful we'll have more because of course I had a laundry list of things to talk about. We really leaned into a couple of topics, but actually I think that's a good thing because you can lean in a little deeper and then move on to the next thing next time. So 
first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. Um, why don't we t tell people more about where they can find you, where they can get their hands on your book and what's coming up next for Dr. Stephanie Estima's universe? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, the first couple of ways that you can interact with me are just like no cost on Instagram. I'm there pretty regularly. So it's just Dr. First Name, Last Name, Dr. Stephanie Estima on Instagram. Um, I have, as of this recording, just started a newsletter, a free newsletter uh, for talking about all of these things, the cold plunges, the zone two training, the, you know, all this kind of stuff, like these female centric issues for women in perimenopause and menopause. So you can get over to my website, drstephanieestima.com uh, forward slash newsletter. And there's like a little sign up button there. We send that out weekly. And then all the old uh, newsletters are going to be on that website, like on that uh, site as well. So those are sort of the no cost, if you want ways. Um, and I guess the other no cost way would be my podcast. I am a fellow podcaster as you are. Mm -hmm. uh, the podcast is called Better with Dr. Stephanie. So those are three places to start. And then if you want to pick up my book, any good bookstore, so Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all the places. It's called the Betty Body. We named the book. People are always like, what's Betty? Who's Betty? Uh, it's named after the podcast. So better, my community members started oh, calling themselves hey. Bettys. They're like, yeah. I'm a Betty. I'm a Betty. And I was like, I oh, that. that's just the cutest. And it, it speaks <laughs> to my vintage heart. And, you know, so I was like, okay, Betty it is. So, you know, the Betty yeah. Body is um, how to eat and train and sleep according to your menstrual cycle. Um, so you can pick that up at any, any good bookstore. So those are the places right now um, that I have for people to come into my world and geek out with you. And geek out, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. This has been a total pleasure and uh, I look forward to the next time we get to talk again. Thank you so much. It's been great. Before we wrap up today's episode, I'd love to invite you to join my biohacking superhuman performance community, aka the BSP community. This is a place where we dive deeper into longevity science, peptides, and bioregulators. If you're looking to get into the nitty gritty on these larger topics, this is the place for you. Plus, we hold weekly Q&A sessions, either with myself or with special guests for live interviews for you to join, and you can ask questions to the community for everyone to answer along with myself. It's an amazing community. If you want to join, head over to natnidham.com forward slash BSP dash community to join or find the link in the show notes. Thank you so much for your continued support and for tuning into today's episode. I wish you all the best this week in your biohacking superhuman performance. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of the biohacking superhuman performance podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to leave us a five-star review on iTunes because that's what helps us to be heard and to be seen. If you'd like to connect with me directly, or if you'd like to leave any comments, or if you have any questions about this episode, please reach out to me directly through my website, natnidham.com. And of course, if you're not already a member of the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Community on Facebook, that's where you'll find me every day. It's a short application. Just answer a couple of questions and you're in and interfacing with other amazing biohackers. Thanks again, and we'll look forward to seeing you on the next episode.